Welcome to it. My name is Michael Apple. I'm standing in for Alec Hogg. It is Thursday, the 20th of January. Got a full show coming up from our partners at the Financial Times. What's going on between the Kremlin and the White House as uh, more nations around the world threaten Russia with sanctions? Should it invade the Ukraine? Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat at our virtual studio in Cape Town. Justin has always had a chat with uh, fund manager Pitful Yoon. Justin, you uh, you had a chat too to Pit. Is he looking optimistic about Woolworths? What's going on there? Mike, it's always great to chat to Pitt. South Africa's informed fund manager generated a return of 44% last year in his counterpoint value fund. So at the moment, I'm taking his opinions very seriously. Woolworths, probably the most infamous retailer or food retailer, at least on the JSE, just because of their ridiculously high pricing. I mean, I'm a big fan of their convenience foods, but it's a big difference whether those are being bought in the supermarkets. Pete says from an investment perspective, the food business is great. However, their fashion and retail, their clothing segments, the discretionary part of the business just hasn't been able to get into gear. They made that acquisition in Australia of David Jones, which has turned out to be a big flop, big write-offs there. And he's looking for activist investors to come into the fold, take that business um, from one consolidated company into three separate businesses. Jim Cramer predicting a oil price peak. What's that all about? So lots of interesting thing happening in the energy sector. This has been one of Pitt's most profitable themes, the energy theme. There's a lot of ESG considerations that are taken into account from fund managers all over the world now. The green economy is on everyone's minds. However, the, the renewable space cannot generate the electricity and the power and the energy needed to support industries across the world. And there's been a host of underinvestment in oil, in commodities, And as a result of the underinvestment and the demand remaining robust, the prices have continued to soar. Uh, Anecdotally, we just need to look at the oil price. The petrol price we pay has increased nearly 50% year on year. Brent crude is at this highest level in years. And the U.S. commentator who works for CNBC, Jim Cramer, previously a a Goldman Sachs analyst on Wall Street, he's called a top in oil, but Pete says forget about that. Oil's still got legs to go. And British American Tobacco looking into vaping. And uh, is Treasury looking to get involved in that? From my understanding, the vaping products aren't taxed or aren't taxed as heavily as the traditional cigarettes as a result of them being e-cigarettes a little bit more healthy, although there have been very few studies. We don't know what this is going to do in future years. Vaping amongst the youth especially is going wild, it's continuing unabated, and it looks like Treasury is going to look to more harshly tax those products going forward. But companies like British American Tobacco, the U.S. giant Philip Morris, they do say that this is the future, and e-cigarette sales are ramping up at at, at a pace. You know, Justin, you also mentioned uh, Woolworths. Your favorite purveyor of club sandwiches, how objective are you on this? 
I, I would say I take quite an objective stance because I've had club sandwiches from all the food retailers, Mike. So as a result of trial and error, I'll have to say Woolies is the best. However, their pricing points are ridiculous. Woolies food just doesn't go up with normal inflation. Right. CPI came out at 5.9%, yet the Woolies club Sammies go up 20% per annum. <laughs> All right, coming up later in the show, uh, I had an extended interview sit down with uh, Bain and Co. whistleblower Athel Williams. He fled South Africa in November 2021, fearing for his life. If you look at what's going on in the country at the moment with uh, Timber Maseko and Johan von Lochenberg's homes being broken into, uh, I asked Mr. Williams whether that confirms his decision was a good one to get out of SA. And then the, well, I suppose, how does one describe it? It's the shenanigans that that went on at the South African Revenue Service and the State Capture Inquiry report finding that former President Jacob Zuma and the former SARS commissioner intimately involved with Bain & Co. as almost co-conspirators in the evisceration of the tax collector. As always, over to Nadia Swat with the news headlines. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. National Treasury is setting its sights on the e-cigarette and vaping market with a discussion paper on the intended taxation of electronic nicotine and non-nicotine delivery systems. The paper was published in mid-December and sets the groundwork for possible taxes on these products in the coming 2022 budget. Vaping products are largely unregulated in South Africa, falling behind other countries which have placed restrictions on the products and related items. The industry is approaching 3 billion rand in value in South Africa, presents another avenue for Treasury to draw taxes and other excise duties. Corruption accused Jacob Zuma is hammering every legal, legal nail he has to keep his corruption trial at bay. He is now seeking to appeal the dismissal of his special plea application to have all charges against him dropped. Even if the su- appeal is dismissed, Zuma is insistent that the appeal goes to the Supreme Court to have questions of law answered. The NPA argues that Zuma can only appeal once convicted and sentenced. The move is the latest in an almost 20-year battle by Zuma's legal team to keep the trial at bay. Amnesty International says that politicians need to stop blaming, blaming their employment crises on foreign nationals, adding that it is scapegoating their own failures and shifting the blame and responsibility onto an incredibly vulnerable group of people. The comments come after the EFF hopped on the anti-foreigner sentiment in South Africa by conducting unsanctioned checks on businesses, looking for instances of foreign labor being used instead of local workers. Political parties have called the EFF's actions a form of workplace terrorism and feeding xenophobia, while legal experts say the EFF's actions were unlawful and likely breached personal information protection laws. Back to you, Justin, for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 76,100. In the currency markets, the Rand was largely flat against all the major currencies at 15 Rand 20 to the dollar, 20 Rand 70 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 25 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,839 an ounce. 
A Kruger Rand will put you back approximately 29,500 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $87.90 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 640,000 Rand. In the financial news, Woolworths expects first half headline profit to slump by more than 40% with lockdown restrictions in Australia and civil unrest in South Africa hitting sales. In an updated trading statement on Thursday, Woolies said trading momentum had showed signs of improvement across all divisions over the last six weeks of the review period, except the fashion, beauty and home division. Black Friday promotions, festive season trade and the lifting of restrictions in Australia all boosted sales. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, January 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The U.S. Senate is going after big tech today, and U.S. banks are excited for interest rate rises in 2022. Plus, Western powers are threatening Russia with further sanctions if it attacks Ukraine. But one problem is that, so far, they haven't really worked well. What is the actual goal of the sanctions? If it's inflicting pain on the Russian economy, then yes, they can be pretty effective. But in terms of actually getting Russia to change its policy to stop the war in eastern Ukraine, then that hasn't been successful. We'll talk with our Moscow bureau chief, Max Seddon, about what Russia's been doing to sanction-proof its economy. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Today, U.S. senators will debate legislation aimed at constraining the power of big tech. It's one of the few things lawmakers from both parties agree on. Two bills are on the table. The central goal is to ban misuse of data for competitive advantage and to prevent bias in search results to favor a search engine's own products. The proposals will also prevent platforms from charging third-party merchants for services in return for more prominent placement. As you might expect, the big tech companies have lined up in opposition. They've warned of dire consequences if the bills are passed into laws, and Amazon says it's being unfairly singled out. But smaller companies like audio hardware maker Sonos support the bill. They say big tech companies have abused their gatekeeper status and made it difficult for other businesses to compete in the digital marketplace. U.S. banks have been reporting fourth quarter earnings and bottom line, 2021 was another banner year of record profits. 2022 is looking good, too. Banks are looking forward to a new normal and higher interest rates. Here's our U.S. banking correspondent, Imani Moise. Banks are definitely excited because rather than avoiding losses, what higher interest rates does is allows them to charge more for their loans. Um, So it's actually a revenue item instead of just a lower cost item, which is really how you drive your business and that's how you drive growth. Um, So, for example, Bank of America reported earnings on Wednesday and they're one of the more asset sensitive banks. So their earnings are more closely tied to what the Federal Reserve does and how they move up and down. And when rates go higher, they could earn more on what they do loan out. So Amani, I got to ask about Goldman Sachs. Uh, The bank reported lower than expected earnings because of pay. Uh, Goldman CEO David Solomon told the FT his bank had to contend with higher wage demands from its employees. 
Yeah, I think what you're hearing from a lot of banks is that they are willing to pay whatever is necessary to kind of keep the top talent coming into their industry and retain them and keep them from going into rival banks, but also different industries like tech or consulting that also pay pretty well, um, but maybe aren't associated with the hours. So I think what they're trying to do is pay for street cred a lot of ways, but really just stay competitive on talent in a way that they haven't necessarily had to do in years before. Another thing, and you know, this is something that you and I have talked about before, is that you know, banks are planning to spend heavily on, on tech, right? A lot of the banks are talking about spending more, increasing their technology budgets to kind of fend off fintech competitors or just uh, shore up their infrastructure that's kind of been around for decades and decades. But I think that the pandemic and 2021 especially was just kind of this wake up moment for a lot of banks. Um, And now they're ready to look more like technology companies. Imani Moise is the FT's U.S. banking correspondent. As Russia maintains its threatening stance towards Ukraine, Western powers have been warning of more economic sanctions. But it's not clear if they would work. Our Moscow bureau chief Max Seddon spoke to us about how Russia's been working to insulate itself against more prohibitive Western sanctions. Russia is nowhere near as entwined in the global financial system as it was before 2014. They've done a lot of work to reduce that. And in, in as much as it is possible to be ready for something like this, they have spent the last seven, eight years stress testing uh, every scenario, the Iran scenario, the North Korea scenario. And when you speak to people in and around the regime, they acknowledge that uh, it could be painful, but they feel like they're pretty much ready for it. If Russia were to invade Ukraine, The West has threatened Russia with sanctions. How effective would those sanctions be? I think you have to look at what is the actual goal of the sanctions. If it's inflicting pain on the Russian economy and making it so that various uh, daughters of uh, Putin's friends, bankers, can't go skiing in in Chamonix, then yes, they can be pretty effective. But in terms of actually getting Russia to change its policy, to give back Crimea, to stop the war in eastern Ukraine, then that hasn't been successful. And that is a problem that Western policymakers really have to reckon with, is that the effect of the sanctions politically in Russia has been that it's made everyone rally around the flag. The hope was that the oligarchs would go to to Putin and say, hey, I really really miss visiting my, my Swiss chalet. Can you please give give Crimea back, or the Russian people would be upset that they can't get any more Parmesan cheese, and there would be people writhing in the streets. And that hasn't happened. Uh, people, If people are missing something, they, they blame the West for, for passing the sanctions. And at a, at a political level, it's just uh, become a kind of patriotic test. Wow. So is there anything the West can do in order to sway Russia? If there is, we haven't seen it. And part of the problem is that After the end of the Cold War, there was this thinking in the West that the more globalization happened, the more integrated countries like, like Russia became with, with the global financial system, then that would make it more, more difficult for wars to happen and these countries would come closer together. But something we've seen, uh, both with the Chinese trade war and now with the sanctions issue with Russia is actually it makes it more difficult to stop these geopolitical flare ups because the West is just as dependent on Russia because Russia sells so much oil and gas. You know, European leaders have admitted this, that you just can't turn off over overnight. There's already an energy crisis. So that is something that there really isn't a good answer for on the Western side is how to reduce Europe in particular and Germany, its uh, own interdependence on the Russian economy. 
Yeah, so sanctions would kind of be shooting itself in the foot. Speaking of sort of the same concept here, uh, Russia's war chest comes at a cost to the Russian economy and, and to Russians, doesn't it? It does. You could argue that the greatest cost from the sanctions isn't actually what they do to the Russian economy, but what Russia has has done to be prepared to defend against them. Because when you have such a conservative uh, fiscal policy, obviously it limits growth and investment. And you saw that during the coronavirus pandemic, where a group of economists wrote an open letter to Putin saying, this is the rainy day. It is here. This is time to spend the money and uh, get, get out of the pandemic. And Russia didn't spend a cent. And now Russia has one of the world's highest death rates from the pandemic. It's it's also obviously when you don't have a lot of uh, investment, it's a barrier to growth. One of the big problems for, for Putin domestically right now is uh, inflation, which is skyrocketing. And at the same time, Russians' incomes have been going down. They're down more than 10% since uh, the, the annexation of, of Crimea. So obviously, when you're prepared for sanctions, that limits your ability to invest at home. But at the same time, if, if you're Putin, you look at a country like Iran or, or even North Korea, the regimes are still looking pretty secure and they've been able to stand up to the West and challenge the, the United States in quite a lot of ways very effectively. That's super interesting. Max Seddon is the FT's Moscow Bureau Chief. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Mark. Before we go, Hong Kong authorities are worried about people catching COVID from animals. They've culled more than a thousand hamsters in the process. Now, residents are nervous that their own pets will be targeted, so they're trying to get their pups and their kitties and their rabbits out. But that's been hard. Hong Kong's super-tough anti-COVID border restrictions have led to flight cancellations and driven up cargo rates. Pet owners remain undeterred. The FTA reports that many are grouping together and chartering jets to escape with their pets. As for the cost, one consultant says it's about 150,000 Hong Kong dollars, that's 20,000 U.S. dollars, to transport a Labrador retriever and its owner to the U.K., You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers a single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the business.com homepage. See you there. Pitful Yuen, CountPoint Value Fund Manager. Pits, I had a chuckle at one of your tweets last night. Famous U.S. commentator Jim Cramer attempting to call a top in the oil price. You took this as a strong buy signal. I know Kramer is infamous for running his mouth, but I don't think I've been around long enough to comment on his recommendations. I assume from your comment, he's wrong more than he is right. Look, I, I haven't tracked it, but uh, Jim Kramer isn't in the investment business. He's in the, in the entertainment business. Uh, and I don't think one should take your investment recommendations from someone in the entertainment business. So, and I think that's basically what it boils down to. I, I don't think whether he's buying or selling oil means anything at all. Staying on the energy story, another fund manager, Drikus Kombrink, whose funds also had a remarkably strong 2021. You two sing from the same hymn sheet when it comes to your thesis on energy. 
I've seen the phrase, your ESG is my alpha flying around. Could you break that down, what yeah. that means in layman's terms? So, so I think if one takes a step back to, to understand how cycles work, I think one has to understand um, the supply of a commodity, how the supply comes to the market. Uh, any demand for most commodities is pretty linear and straightforward and it goes you know, bottom left to top right at a certain gradient growth rate. Um, easily forecastable uh, but too many people focus on demand uh, i think one should to determine how the commodity cycle plays out you should focus on supply because it takes a long time to build an oil well or discover and build an oil well it takes a long time to discover and build a copper mine a gold mine a platinum mine you know we're talking five to ten to fifteen years um, and what's happening in most commodity markets right now is that due to ESG considerations, CapEx is being curtailed. Uh, these companies are not spending CapEx on exploration. They're not spending CapEx on building out new mines. Um, therefore, as the global economy demand grows over time as it will, because the global GDP grows by 2 to 3% per annum, at some point in the future, and I think we're getting dangerous close to that in some commodities, um, uh, there will not be enough to meet demand. I think we're seeing that in many energy markets, specifically in Europe at the moment, where energy prices have gone through the roof. Um, and I think that could uh, spread out to other commodities going forward, mainly due to um, ESG considerations. I think uh, the ESG lobby, um, as and, and it's not too denigrate what they're doing. I think um, ESG is important, but um, the, one of the things that they are very hard on is this whole transition to uh, clean energy. Uh, and I think that transition is necessary and we should be going down that road, but it entails many trade-offs and nuances, which I think a lot of the ESG proponents are not taking into consideration. Um, so I think one has to bear a lot of those things in mind. And that's why when we say your ESG is my alpha, as they constrain the capital to these mining companies and oil businesses, as they stop them from exploring and stop them from developing new sources of their commodity, the price of the commodities will go up. Uh, and we've seen that happening in many commodities, specifically oil and energy right now. Um, uh, and that's where the alpha comes from. Willie's out with the trading update. That was worse than expected with the share slightly lower today. The crown jewel, the food business, slowed somewhat, and the rest of the portfolio, beauty and fashion, still struggling. I'm a big fan of their convenience foods, like their club sandwiches, but what's your take on Willie's as an investment proposition? Yeah, so Willie's consists of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I think the good is a food business. I think it's a fantastic business. The bad is the... Uh, clothing and home business uh, that's never really done very well, and the, and the ugly is the Australian acquisition, you know, uh, the department store in, in Australia. Uh, if we had true activist investors in South Africa, like Elliott Advisors and others in the US, they would, they would probably be taking a stake in the business and and forcing them to break up the the business into three parts. Because at the moment, what you have is the food business subsidising an average clothing and and home furnishings business. Uh, and subsidizing a very bad Australian department store business. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think if we had true activist investors, they would, they would be um, 
going for a breakup of this business. Uh, uh, of course, management doesn't want that because the bigger businesses, the higher management's remuneration is. And uh, so it's in their interest to keep everything together. But Pete, would that be possible in terms of the integration between their food business and their clothing business? When you go into Woolies in any big shopping center, you'll walk through their food department and then often their country road and their clothing departments are branch off within the bigger stable. Yeah, they're branched off there because they're being subsidized by the food business. So I, I think it's I think you'll find that many there, there are many, many Willie's food shops, standalone food shops. Um there's no reason why you can't split them there. I think that's a sensible thing to do. And food retailers as a whole on the JSC, do you hold any in the Counterpoint Value Fund? Yes. Uh, uh, ShopRite is a significant holding for, for us. Um, uh, we think it's a well-managed, it's one of the best managed businesses in South Africa. Um, uh, it's taking, it continues to take market share across the spectrum from the top end to the low end. Um, and also longer term, uh, I think food retailing, due to the negative working capital cycle, is a very good inflation hedge. Um, so I like owning a food retail business, and I like being able to own the best managed food retail business in ShopRite. Storage REIT came out with a cautionary announcement relating to its UK operations. Just anecdotally, I was in Joburg for the first half of last year and Cape Town for the second half, and in both cities, their facilities are in every second neighborhood. It's also one of the REITs that's managed to survive this listed property meltdown over the last three to five years. What are the reasons for this? Um, the reasons for its ability to uh, to sustain itself through the meltdown, well, I, I think it's offering a product that the market wants and needs. So to that extent, it's, it has uh, delivered. Um, uh, is it a good investment at this point? Well, first of all, I think the directors themselves are selling. Uh, and the company is selling shares to the market. So uh, the insiders don't think it's a great investment. Um, also, I think if one just uh, goes back to what I said at the start, you know, if you want to determine the investment outlook for a product, you have to look at the supply, not demand. Uh, and the supply of storage spaces is coming on stream rapidly everywhere in the world, UK and, and, and South Africa. So I think there's a lot of supply coming to the market. Uh, and I think that might uh, influence the investment outcome for this business going forward. Let's talk tobacco stocks for a moment. I read an interesting article about Treasury coming after vaping products, uh, basically e-cigarettes. Despite turning the wrong side of 30 earlier this week, I still regard myself as somewhat young and the youth of today are vaping unabated. Is this the future for companies like British American Tobacco and Philip Morris? What is their commentary in their annual reports like with regards to vaping or e-cigarettes? They definitely think it's it's the future um, because tobacco smoking is definitely the past. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That That is um, going the way the dinosaurs. Less and less people are smoking globally. Even in emerging markets, less people are smoking. It's becoming more expensive. Uh, there will become a point where it's not affordable. So that's that's a thing of the past. So the future for these businesses is, uh, is you do one of two things. Uh, you either just uh, just you know diminish over time as less and less people smoke, or you create new products which they've been doing in varying degrees of success with vaping and non-combustibles and, and other forms of nicotine delivery. Um, so for British American Tobacco, vaping is a significant product or, uh, and, and they're spending a lot of money on developing that product. And I, I, from what it looks like, it seems to be 
fairly successful. It's not like smoking, uh, but it seems to be fairly successful. CPI came out hotter than expected at 5.9%. The next MPC meeting is happening soon. What do you expect the Reserve Bank to do? Yeah, look, um, they're probably going to hike. I think the market consensus that they're going to hike. I think the market consensus that they're going to hike by 2% over the next year or so. I think that's far too much. Our economy is weak. Uh, the inflation that we're having is not because of a strong economy. It's not because of high consumer spending. It's not because of any of those sort of things. It's basically because um, the inflation is high because uh, fuel prices have gone up due to a combination of high oil price and a weak rand. Um, hiking interest rates is not going to change any one of those two things. So if I were the Reserve Bank, I probably wouldn't even hike rates at this point. Um, I don't think the economy is strong enough to take it. I'm Michael Apple. Welcome to this very special interview with Athol Williams, a former ethics lecturer at UCT. He worked for U.S. consultancy firm Bain and Company as a part-time partner serving on the Bain Africa Oversight Board. He blew the whistle in 2019, implicating Bain and Co. in the ransacking of our revenue service SARS, a perfectly orchestrated project found by the commission to be headed by former President Jacob Zuma and his hand-picked commissioner, Tom Moyane. Mr. Williams fled South Africa in early November 2021, fearing for his life. The Zonda report looked at the purging of competent top officials, strategic positioning of compliant individuals, restructuring and deliberate weakening of institutional functions, and a climate of fear and bullying at the revenue service. The report notes uh, that the use of uh, your former employers, let's put it that way, Bain and Co. in this instance, were used to justify changes that were necessary to advance the capture of SARS. What was the final straw, Mr. Williams, that led you to believe that these people were actively seeking to destroy the competence of SARS? So, Michael, I wasn't at Bain when Bain worked at SARS. Um, I, I was brought in in 2018 under the auspices of them wanting to make amends in the country. But what led me to eventually leaving Bain and blowing the whistle was when I became convinced um, of two things. One, Bain was withholding information from me, from the public, and from the authorities about what it knew about what happened at SARS and other state institutions where it worked. And secondly, was that Bain's focus was on protecting its business in the U.S. rather than doing the right thing in South Africa. And so the focus for Bain became um, evasion, obfuscation of just giving South Africa the bare minimum rather than full disclosure and rather, rather than doing the right thing, which was my interest. That's why I got involved with Bain in 2018 was because they had told me they wanted to fix and make amends for what they had done to SARS. Yeah, they were looking to plaster over the cracks in their public image stemming from the Nugent Commission. And the State Capture Inquiry is the second commission to make very damning findings against them. I just want to go to what the Zondo report, this part one, has said. And I'd like your thoughts on particular issues and just to explain why they're problematic. So it, it, it found that 
certain uh, Bain executives, uh, Mr. Masoni, I think Vittorio Masoni was meeting with Mr. Tomoyane way ahead of the fact before he was appointed head of SARS as the commissioner. Why would something like that be problematic? So, Michael, in and of itself, it's not problematic, right? You can meet with whoever we want. When you look at some of the details of the, the circumstances around which Mr. Masoni and some of his colleagues were meeting with with Tom Moyani. The, the first circumstance that's relevant is that as early as October 2013, so that's a full year before Mr. Moyani is appointed as the commissioner, he, Mr. Moyani, was given the assurance from President Zuma that he would be the new commissioner of SARS. That's even before the full recruitment process had completed. So Mr. Moyani knew he was going to be the commissioner given the assurance from the president. Secondly, Mr. Moyani and Mr. Zuma had informed Bain of that decision. And, and so this is what makes it massively problematic because these parties knew it was going to happen. Furthermore, they'd been meeting Bain, Mr. Moyani, uh, President Zuma, to begin to develop a plan for what would happen when Mr. Moyani got into SARS. Bain then spends up, up to a year investing time and massive resources working with Mr. Imoyani to develop this detailed plan of what is going to happen when he gets to SARS. And that's what makes that problematic. This wasn't casual meetings. This wasn't a meeting just to, to meet and greet. These were meetings to begin the planning. And the planning is what is shocking because for people outside of SARS to plan the level of detail that Bain and Moyani did plan, firstly shows that they were getting information from inside SARS coming to them. So there was a deep throat called Jonas Makwakwa. And, and, and secondly, that the intent becomes clear. The intent says that they were going to restructure SARS no matter what. Even before they got in there, before they even did this, this sham diagnostic, the, the intent was always to disable certain functions and to restructure SARS. SARS was among the top five revenue and customs authorities in the world. I assume that this was inconvenient to state capturers in the country. Absolutely. Um, and there's been lots of speculation about why um, the state capturers would want to go after SARS. Um, was it to loot SARS directly? Was it part of their strategy to get hold of Treasury? Was it to disable particular law enforcement capabilities within SARS so that tax dodgers could keep dodging tax? I think it's some combination of all those reasons. Uh, the report notes that this sort of systemic decline of SARS didn't happen overnight. It, it, it was presided over by the ANC, the ANC cadres, and the report states, quote, either they did not care or they slept on the job or they had no clue what to do. It, it was obviously to their benefit to have a dysfunctional revenue collector. That much is clear. And you talk about this sort of sham refresh. Bain had a lovely word for it, profound strategy refresh. Now, you must roll your eyes at this because there was absolutely no need for this grand plan. Was it all simply a masquerade? You know, Michael, those words, as, as a career management consultant, and, and I was a partner at Bain, I started with Bain in 1995. Um, we would never use those words, a profound strategy refresh, because of what it implies. If you are going to go and do this profound strategy refresh of any organization, it means it's a complete do-over. It means that the, the organization is dysfunctional, um, nothing is working, and no amount of tweaking is going to solve the problem. It needs to be almost... You know, 
taken apart and put back together again. And of course, that's exactly what Bain and Moyani had intended. But the fact that this was the plan at the outset, for me, is completely shocking because there's no right-minded person in the world who would say that SARS was dysfunctional. In fact, as you said, it was one of the top five tax collection agencies in the world. Bain's argument is, well, they found problems at SARS, and so therefore they had to restructure. And, and I've got to say, that is just an you know, a, a absolutely despicable explanation, because, of course, every organization has opportunities for improvement. But that's where you go and improve a process. You perhaps hire a few extra people. You introduce new IT, perhaps. Um, there's very rarely, as a management consultant myself, I know that restructuring is always your last resort. It's only once you've tried everything else to improve the organization do you actually go and restructure. Yet, before Bain or Moyani even got to SARS, the decision already was made to restructure. And for me, this just shows the intent. This was not a consulting project where they went in, saw the problems, designed a solution. They arrived with a solution already designed. You know, I read with a mixture of amusement and horror about uh, Bain's development uh, partners in South Africa, Ambro Bright, who ironically had a fraudulent tax certificate. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Did Bain simply see millions of rands in revenue and use this bogus front company to get access to politically connected individuals? And who was Ambro Bright close to? So it was absolutely a, an, an attempt to buy their way into political circles. Amber Bright is not even an operating company, never was an operating company. Uh, it was, um, I imagine, something bought, bought off the shelf um, on the day it was needed. And it was supposedly run by two individuals, Duma Ndlovu, who's a creative artist and TV producer, and uh, Mandla Kanozulu was also an, an artist. So you've got these two artists who are now supposedly offering strategy advice to one of the world's preeminent strategy consulting firms um, on how to do just ordinary you know, business development in South Africa. It's preposterous, isn't it? But of course, we know, and Bain knew all the way up. This wasn't a South African issue at Bain. This was all the way up to Boston, its global head office. In its global head office, they knew the reason for engaging with Amber Bright, with Duma Ndlovu, was because of his proximity to Jacob Zuma. They basically opened the doors to Jacob Zuma, and I presented documented evidence to the Zonda Commission that show every one of those meetings that Bain had with Jacob Zuma, Mr. Duma Ndlovu was present. At some other point, Bain itself becomes concerned about what's called the sunshine test. Can you explain to our community what the sunshine test is? So the sunshine test was uh, internal sort of um, lingo for, I, I guess, setting a, an ethical uh, bar. And, and so the, 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 the test was always, if what we are doing became public knowledge, would we be proud of that? Would we think it stands up to scrutiny? And I, I, I think it's an admirable way to think about things. And I, I loved that question of, of the sunshine test, because, you know, when you, when you believe you're never going to be caught out, um, you, you, know, you have a different way of behaving than if you think, oh, my goodness, if this gets public, um, you know, how will we defend it? And so Bain applies this sunshine test to things. And, of course, 
at global level, at the head office in Boston, there was concern about the sunshine test of Bain's involvement with, uh, with Jacob Zuma, with Duma and Lovu. And it fails the sunshine test. Um, and in a bizarre way, it still proceeds. And there's a very interesting question that Bain wants to avoid, which is who approved that contract? Who approved this relationship with Jacob Zuma? Who approved the strategy for using Amber Bright to get to Jacob Zuma? And, and Bain wants us to believe it was Mr. Massoni, but that's nonsensical. The contract went all the way up to Boston to head office. It was approved at Bain's global head office in Boston. You know, there would be 17 meetings between Bain and Mr. Zuma over two years, every six weeks. To gain that sort of access to a head of state, you've got to be selling something good or of interest or of benefit to the president. Is that what they were doing? You know, Bain claims that those were marketing meetings, um, which, which again, you know, the way they consistently insult South Africans' intelligence is, is astounding. Because um, they're now trying to discredit the Zonda Commission. They've discredited the Nugent Commission. They're trying to discredit me. It's never about them. It's always about everyone else doing these wrong, bad things. But they're telling us that those were marketing meetings. Now, I think it's, it's highly problematic that any business consultant is, is meeting with the president. You've got an American company headed by an Italian meeting with our president to discuss the ANC's manifesto to discuss how parliament is run, to discuss reshaping and repurposing our, our institutions. That's highly problematic. It's even quite unusual. Well, not quite. It's, it's very unusual, Michael, even for a management consultant ordinarily to be meeting with politicians. Bain is a management consulting business, a business consulting business. We meet with CEOs, boards of directors. If you're going to do something in government, you'd meet with the minister perhaps, but import, probably the DG of a, of a department. That's where you would be meeting to work and focus on improving those organizations. The fact that we were meeting with a corrupt president, um, as you, you sort of insinuate, um, is absolutely because you're selling something that that president uniquely is interested in. And, you know, there's, there's this phrase that Bain um, uses called president's projects. A number of the projects they want, they, they keep saying, we should get this to be uh, designated a president's project. And what I discover from Bain's documents is if it's des designated a president's project, meaning Zuma takes a personal interest in it, they can bypass the normal governance processes. They don't even have to go to the minister. They can go straight to the president. So this shows, again, this level of intimacy of planning. Um, designated a president's project, Jacob Zuma takes a personal interest um, in it. Um, and therefore, you can bypass normal governance in doing what you were doing. Now, as you've mentioned, Bain would get involved in the ANC's manifesto, plans to restructure SA's economy, centralize procurement, allowing this level of involvement of a foreign consultancy firm uh, points to plans for much greater involvement than just Telcom, where they would get a billion rand, let's say, and SARS 167 million rand with interest, 217 million rand that they paid back. But I mean, they were, they were aiming big here with all of their grand plans. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm glad you raised that, Michael, because often we, we've become a bit obsessed with just focusing on what happened at SARS. Bain worked across all of our state institutions. They were at Telcom, as you say, at Development Bank of South Africa, the IDC, PIC. Um, across the board. And 
the, the, the fees they earned ran into the multiple billions. But, but frighteningly, it was when they looked ahead um, at these plans to restructure our entire state institutions, that's where Bain was seeing tens of billions of rands for decades to come. And, and that's why Masoni was celebrated as a hero within Bain. Globally, within the Bain system, Masoni was seen as a hero. At the worldwide partner meeting, for example, he was called up onto the stage and celebrated for cracking it in South Africa, for being intimate with the president, for being involved in you know, generating revenues that um, was among the highest in Bain's global system. And this is why he, he stayed as head of Bain's office in South Africa for a record nine years. Bain does not keep a head of an office that long. Across the system, this was the longest serving managing partner ever in Bain's system. Why? Because he was doing the unthinkable. He'd got intimate with the president and he was going to restructure the entire economy. So again, this idea of Bain saying, well, you know, Masoni was this lone, rogue, bad apple who had no idea what he was doing. It's absolute nonsense. This is part of a coordinated strategy endorsed by his bosses in, in Boston. Yeah, he'd hooked the biggest fish there was to Absolutely. Hook. Yeah. Um, I want to read an extract from the report, which shows that Mr. Zuma was not involved at arm's length, as he so often is. Quote, President Zuma was himself directly and personally involved in the activities and plans to take over a government entity, namely SARS. That's extraordinary that he's been so closely linked to the evisceration of, well, I'm not going to say his own tax uh, revenue service, but certainly one that is supposed to serve the interests of the country. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's the power of, of that evidence I was able to present to the commission. Um, it was, I think, for the first time we could put Jacob Zuma in the room, so to say, um, with those who were designing and executing parts of the state capture plan. And, and, and I think that's also important, Michael, that we recognize that Bain should not be lumped with all the other companies involved in state capture. They, 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 they sit apart because they were Jacob Zuma's consultant of choice. They sat with him at the table, at the highest table, planning state capture. So while many of the others obviously are guilty for being involved, but they're involved in the execution parts of it, there's only one firm who sat with Jacob Zuma, with the corrupt politicians, with the corrupt business people, who, by the way, still hold prominent positions in our society today, um, but they sat with them planning this. And I think that's why we need to be worried about the fact that they continue to operate in our country. You are saying they're co-conspirators. These are not unwitting, unknowing participants in state capture. I, I'm glad that what I presented to the Zonda Commission wasn't my opinion. It wasn't what I heard. It was based on documents that I had. That I had. Bain documents, documents I got from Bain or from their, their supposed independent lawyers, Baker McKenzie. And these documents show that there was... This was a coordinated plan. The, the strategy was known and endorsed all the way up to Boston. This is not unwitting. Unwitting is, is Bain's PR spin to try and deflect from what they've done. The, the truth is, it was an explicit strategy. You know, Masoni says things to his boss, Paul Meehan, who um, was and still is in London. He says things like, we were tested by the president at Telcom, and now we're moving on to SARS. We discussed with the president what his plan is, and we, Bain, are intimate, um, a key part of this plan. This is not uh, discussions about 
you know, unwittingness. This is um, explicit knowledge that you are part of the plan, that your, your strategy is working because this was what you intended, and they were then getting on and implementing it. I want to speak about the various units. It was eventually dubbed the SARS Rogue Unit, but there were many units, the High Risk Intervention Unit. Uh, people like Johann von Lochenberg, dedicated, very skilled um, executives within SARS who were targeting the illicit economy. They were, which was a hundred billion rand economy, the illicit economy in South Africa. I want to ask you if the most senior people in government and the ANC were involved in blocking these efforts from these units, trying to shut them down. What conclusion should one draw from that? The best conclusion I think a reasonable person can draw is that anyone who wanted to shut down those units had something to hide because they were worried that those units would find this information they wanted hidden. And what did they want to hide but information that points to their direct or, or their affiliates' involvement in that illicit trade? Again, I say what any reasonable person would do, if you look at, look at what's happened, um, the fact that that unit, which, um, as Johann von Lochenberg describes, was developed over many years to become sophisticated enough and have the right skills to go after these illicit traders, because these are often organized criminals, these illicit traders, you needed very sophisticated people to track them and, and go after them. The fact that that was targeted, both in the media in terms of the rogue unit narrative, but also it targeted directly at SARS in terms of decimating this unit. It was so obvious that there was something to be hidden. And so take out, take out the people who would come and um, you know, look for that hidden information. Here's another extract. Quote, the SARS evidence is a clear example of how the private sector colluded with the executive, including President Zuma, to capture an institution that was highly regarded internationally and render it effective. So you have the findings from the Nugent Commission, the state capture inquiry, yet somehow business leadership South Africa had no problem readmitting Bain as a member after it was initially suspended in 2018, but it was allowed back into the fold. Your reaction to that? It's astounding. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. It shows this, this profound ethical poverty among the board leaders, the board members of Business Leadership South Africa, that these 12 people who are CEOs of some of the biggest companies in our country sat around a table knowing everything that we know about what Bain has done at, at, at SARS and elsewhere, knowing what the Nugent Commission has said, knowing what the Zonda Commission has said, knowing what I've written to them and, and informed them about, and concluded that this was a company that was worthy of being inside their organization, for me, just says that for society, we should now be worried about what's happening at Business Leadership South Africa. If they know Bain was a criminal um, organization, I mean, Busi Mavuso, the CEO of BLSA, actually goes further than the Zonda Commission because the Zonda Commission said Bain acted unlawfully. Busi Mavuso says Bain committed serious crimes. Her words. For me, Michael, if I'm the CEO of a reputed organization and one of my members has committed serious crimes, for me, there'd be outrage firstly, and I would insist, I would, I would expel them immediately and insist on prosecution. Yet what BLSA does is go on a massive public campaign to defend them, to say, don't look at what they've done in the past. Let's look at what they've, the reforms they've made about the future of the organization, which is completely irrelevant when you consider what they've done. It shows that BLSA are willing to embrace 
criminal activity, a massive indictment on our private sector and, and the lack of ethical, principled leadership in that organization. Mr. Moyane, Mr. Zuma, Bain executives, uh, Mr. Vittorio Massone, all who seemingly cooked this whole saga up, they're all walking free. They've ruined lives. Uh, they've decimated the South African Revenue Service and many careers of many executives there. What do you want to see happen? I think I want to see what every decent South African wants to see. We need to see our law enforcement and our criminal justice system do what it's meant to do, which is to prosecute these people and put them behind bars. What they've done, as you describe, is this is is just despicable. It's it's affected our country in ways we can't even calculate and often can't comprehend the impact it's had on lives and on the country as a whole. And so these people need to be prosecuted. But importantly, Michael, I think also we do have to think about whether we run the risk of this continuing. Because some talk about state capture as something of the past. I don't think it's something of the past. I think it's something continuing. It is happening real time. Why would it suddenly stop? All those plans being developed, the culture within business leadership, South Africa, for example, and their members of seeing themselves as apart from the rest of society, because they're behaving as if they're apart from the rest of society, that you guys can worry about corruption and ethical behavior, but we've got a different standard for ourselves. That still continues. And so we need some serious action against businesses who have been complicit in, in the state capture. And, and the Zondo report mentioned some of them. I think we can see a lot more coming forward. But I want to see business in South Africa for, for once in its existence take its role in our society seriously. This proposal of, of giving money now to, to the NPA to to improve their, their ability to, to conduct investigations is complete nonsense. BUSA and Business Leadership South Africa should focus on their own members, root out the corrupt members, punish and sanction the corrupt members. That's the best thing business can do right now and clean up its own act, not with this um, superficial idea, this PR stunt of offering resources to the NPA. Leave the NPA. The government can fund them. We need business to start taking their role seriously in our society and not see themselves as apart from the rest of us. All this negative publicity must carry some consequence for, for Bain & Co. back in the in the United States. What's happening across the pond? I think it's the Baker-McKenzie probe? So Baker-McKenzie were the Bain's lawyers. They were Bain's legal advisors and then supposedly conducted the independent investigation. I don't know how your legal advisors also conduct an independent investigation. What's happening in the U.S. is, is surprisingly little uh, Michael, it's the media's quiet. It just shows how little of what happens in South Africa gets into the into the U.S. media. The Wall Street Journal hasn't reported on this at all. I don't think any of the major U.S. newspapers or news channels have reported on it. So it's not in the public space in the U.S. The you know I've been approached by the FBI and I've, I've had meetings with them. Um, so it seems that the American Department of Justice is doing something. But I'm not sure what, what that investigation's about and what, where the prosecution will follow. You must have learned by now that whistleblowers Temba Maseko and Johan from Lochenberg's homes were broken into just days apart. Are you feeling more confident about your decision to leave South Africa? And how are you coping with that? It's so disturbing um, for me having learned about um, both Johan and Temba's experiences we're on we're on a WhatsApp group. We've got a WhatsApp group amongst all of us state capture whistleblowers, and so it was obviously shared there real time. That's the reality that whistleblowers live with every day. We live in fear every day, and and so my heart goes out to Temba and and Johanna and their families because that's just a terrible experience. 
we've got one of our state capture whistleblowers who's hired a bodyguard every time uh, they, they go out. We've got whistleblowers who don't live in their house, houses because of fear. So it's a, it's a horrible indictment, isn't it, on our, on our society that we have these people who we call heroes and we thank them and we pat them on the back, yet we explicitly abandon them and leave them to fend on their own. I'm still shocked, Michael. I'm still amazed that with all we know, the president has not, or someone in government, hasn't ever contacted me. I've never received an email, a text message, a phone call, um, asking me if I'm okay, asking me if there's everything, anything I need, um, nothing at all. There seems to be this explicit, intentional uh, willingness to leave us exposed and abandon us. I feel vindicated for leaving because I've, I knew I faced that same risk. How are you coping, Mr. Williams? Let me ask you. Well, um, your your listeners and viewers can look at me and decide if I've doubled the number of gray hairs um, in the short period of time. I'm I'm doing okay, but that's because of my resilience. I'm committed to resisting state capture in our country. I'm committed to working towards an ethical society in South Africa. I want to be back home. That's where my home is. Uh, and so I'm 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 still fighting and I'm still staying strong as best I can. But the reality is my life's been ruined. My career's been ruined. I haven't had an income for two and a half years. I've ripped my family out of their home and, and, and we've come to a foreign place. We have got no legal permanent um, or, or, or status. So I'm, I'm not happy. I'm sad for our country. I'm sad for, for our fight against injustice. But I will keep on my fight. I'm not, I'm not giving up. And this is what Bain has learned. This is what BLSA have learned. And, and all those involved in state capture must know that there are, there are people out there like me who are going to keep pointing. They might want to go into the shadows, but we will keep shining a light on their wrongdoing in those shadows until people like Bain uh, make full disclosure and make full amends. Ethel Williams, I'm going to finish off by reading a final extract from the report. The commission, quote, particularly wishes to express its appreciation to Mr. Williams for the evidence he gathered and placed before the commission, which revealed much about the interactions between Bain and Co and Mr. Moyane and Bain and Co and the president, former President Zuma, with regards to their plans for and the execution of the capture of SARS. He, Mr. Williams, rejected numerous attempts from Bain and Co. to give him large sums of money in return for his silence. The commission highly appreciates his assistance, close quote. And I'll say, as should all South Africans. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Michael. The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Biz News Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the biznews.com homepage. See you there. Thanks so much for listening to the Biz News Power Hour. Carrie's Corner is up on Friday. The team will be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.